You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So today we are going to be in Romans 8 on chapter 9 and 10. It's a little change from what some of you might have thought because we've added an extra weekend to the series. It's not 12 weeks. Now it's going to be 13 Next week, we'll get on to Romans 12, partly so that it kind of fits, because our next series after this will be the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, starts a series called in the church Advent for a lot of people. Um, We're going to do a series called Ugly Christmas and Ugly Christmas, because it could be this year, okay? So start breaking out your ugly sweaters. Uh, And and that series is really going to be focusing on the idea that... um, You know, it was some ugly times that the prophets of old spoke God's word and promises of the Messiah in. You know, if you look at Isaiah's prophecies of the beauty of the Messiah coming, it was at a very dark period in Israel, an ugly time. And that's true for Ezekiel. It's true for Jeremiah. These prophecies were uh, spoken in wonderful, peaceful times, but in very difficult ones. And so I think God has a good word for us in the midst of some tough times that we're going through now, too. And I think preparing us for the real... And the first Christmas itself, you know, just consider the manger itself, the manure, the hay. You understand what I mean? Not real pretty. So um, I think this is going to be exciting to go into that season and into that time. So for that sake, this one was added, and I'm glad we added these texts in today in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10 as we get into it. Now, um, this text is really dealing with, as we are going to be looking at it, two huge issues all the way through, privilege and power and how they were used by different groups in the Roman Empire in that world. There, uh, there was a division between Gentiles and Jews, between slave and free, between uh, the, the weak and the strong, between men and women, between the rich and the poor, between those who were citizens of Rome and those who were slaves in Rome. It was amazing how their society was as divided, if not more so, than ours today. And Paul said, in the Christian church, it is the one institution that God has established to unite all people in Jesus Christ, where all of these divisions go away. The realities of those things, the differences between us should not divide us because we are united in the grace of God. We are all justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's why he wrote the book of Romans, to deal with those divisions and to deal with the things that the Roman Christians were handling at the time. Now, here's the reality. Not everyone likes this doctrine or teaching that people are saved by grace through faith. A lot of people are still looking for another method, another way, another uh, way to control it themselves, like to set themselves up to kind of justify themselves in one form or another. They want it based on either their efforts, their willpower, their sincerity, their clan, their lineage, their race, their nation. Because when you feel like you're in a position of power, you want to stay there. Jesus saw this in his own life. He came to his own people among the poorest of the poor, but some of the richest of the rich and the people with power and the people who thought their acts were together tended to turn him away. They rejected him. 
And that's why it was fascinating again and again, uh, Jesus says, as he said in Matthew 20, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Seems like when he came into this world, though he united many people together, others didn't like it because then they lost their position. And tragically, Paul found out in the book of Romans, and he found out just historically what was happening as he was bringing the gospel to all people, that he'd start first in the synagogue wherever he went, and then he went to the Gentiles, that often, tragically, it was the people you'd expect the most to accept this wonderful message of Jesus being the Messiah were the ones that largely rejected it. It was his own fellow Jews so often that turned away, that rejected Jesus and said, no, it doesn't quite fit. And it was the Gentiles who had no clue at all about God's word, God's oracles, God's laws, God's truth that welcomed Jesus as their savior. So the question comes up in Romans 9 and 10, what went wrong? Because shouldn't... Uh, the religious people be the ones that are getting in? Shouldn't they, the ones who've had God's word, who got God's law, had all of these things that God had prophesied, shouldn't they have accepted and welcomed what went wrong? And so Paul says it's not God's word that went wrong. So we're going to start reading in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 8, then 9, uh, verses 30, uh, 30 to, uh, 9, verse 30 to 10, verse 4, Okay. So this is what Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this is the section that we're working at today. And I think these three um, points are going to be made Okay, we're going to be looking at how Paul has a radical description of what it means to belong, a radical clarification of believing, and then a radical culmination of what your purpose is now in this world as a result, and how this all fits in with this idea of being justified, and how that mends our lives, mends our hearts, and can mend this world and all our relationships. So first of all, a radical description of belonging. The question is, and always, what does it mean to belong to the people of God? Now, by the time Paul was alive, Judaism had faced so much turmoil over the last thousand years 
They had faced all sorts of internal and external threats, in fact, existential threats. In 586 BC, they were exiled into Babylon, where they were wondering, are we going to make it? They come back to the land 70 years later, and are we going to make it? The place is a pile of rubble, and Nehemiah tries to help build the walls up. They build another temple, and yet, are they going to make it? Are we going to exist? Are we here? You know, what's going on? They kept, even in Paul's day, when they had a second temple and it was still being finished by King Herod, and when they still had the ability under the Roman government to worship somewhat freely, they still were in occupied territory. Rome was still running the show. They did not have their own king. They couldn't set their own rules. And even the priesthood, they looked at and kind of like, yeah, well, because the priesthood itself was basically uh, paid off. They paid off the Romans to have it for that year, each year, a tribute being given to Rome. And so everything seemed compromised. And what does it mean to be the people of God when you're facing such existential threats? And what seems to have been happening is what also happens today when a people feel like they are under existential threat. We tend to circle the wagons. You know that old saying, you go out into the... uh, you. And you protect yourself from any influence outside it. You set up barriers and boundary markers. And the Jews of Paul's day did the same. What used to be the fact that a people belonging to God were those who were covenanted, whom God chose by grace as he did Abraham, who then received God's law and received his word, all of a sudden the barriers were starting to go up. Instead of welcoming foreigners who believed, instead of gathering together and worshiping the goodness of God and his grace, they started looking around and saying, wait a minute, you don't fit in. You're not good enough. If you went to the temple, by the way, in Jesus' day, there is no place in the um, history of Israel where this should have happened, but it was happening. They had set up the temple where there was a court for the Gentiles. That's all the farther you could go in if you were Gentile. I don't know how they actually checked if you're circumcised or not at that day. If there was some machine that you walked through, like at the airport, whoop, whoop, whoop. No, you know, I don't want to know. But then the court of the Gentiles. Then there was the court of women. You could only go so far if you were a Jewish woman. And then there was the court of men, because they were so much closer to God. And then finally the priests could go into only certain parts. That is not the setup anywhere in the scriptures, but that's how they set it up because they were starting to put boundary markers of who's in and who's out. They defined themselves by race, by heritage, by tradition. They defined by who's in and who's out by are you circumcised or not? Are you following the kosher food laws? Are you keeping the Sabbath the way that we are? Are you looking like we do? Are you thinking like we do? And Paul himself did the same thing. He was doing the same exact thing by race, by his heritage, by his zeal for the law, by his strict adherence to the Torah, even by his zeal for persecuting those who were straying until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he realized what was really happening to Judaism, that over time they had strayed away from God's truth and set up traditions and teachings of human beings as what kept people in or kept people out. They moved away from having a faith 
in God's grace to a works-based, performance-based, behavior-based approach to who's in and who's out and who belongs. And Paul said, that's not it. That's not it. He, he describes again, kind of getting back to that radical understanding of what it means to be the people of God and to belong to God in this passage. He says, first of all, it's not by race, but it's by grace. That means, and Paul writes in Romans 9, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. Not everyone who's just in Israel automatically gets in. Not everyone genetically descended by Abraham were actually God's children. You don't automatically qualify just because you're part of the gene pool. That was kind of a radical understanding of who's in and who's out. But it's not just the Jews of the first century, the second temple, that were doing these things. You know, I've seen a lot of Christians do the same type of thing today. I grew up in a town that is just really thrilled with its heritage. You know, it was founded as a mission to the um, Chippewa Indians in Michigan. And so everyone, you know, you've got this 150 plus year, 175 year heritage now. They just celebrated. And it's wonderful. But just because you're born in that town doesn't make you a Christian. Today, even Christians uh, think in terms of their race or their heritage or their lineage. Just because you're raised in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than you happen to be in a garage makes you an automobile, right? And just because you happen to be in a Europe, have a European ancestry and traditionally your nation or your people used to be Christian doesn't make you Christian today. Just because you have a line of pastors and teachers and church workers in your ancestry doesn't give you a one-up, a leg up on God. Abraham, in chapter 4 of this book, was saved by grace through faith. He was ungodly when he was called. Nobody else is different. Everybody's in the same boat. Everyone in all of history has been saved by God's grace through faith, period. So first, it's not by grace, but by grace. And secondly, it's by faith and not performance that you belong to the people of God. And here, Paul writes in Romans 9, but the, that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. Now, who's in, who out, who's out, who doesn't count, and who belongs? So, like I said, Israel was doing a switcheroo kind of over time. They had been defined by the people of God, chosen because they were you know, elected by God through the promise of God to Abraham and to his offspring. But over time, the switcheroo happened, and in order for you to really belong, you must perform. And they started to pursue thinking the way that we really get in with God is by law keeping, by our performance. You know, I think that happens also to Christians today. You know, I've seen it, many people start thinking it's in terms of performance. To be a member of a church, to belong, you better behave like we behave. If you don't, you're not really belonging. 
You might get in by the gospel, but you only stay by keeping the rules. Now, some denominations have their preferred styles of rules. So some of them, it's you better not drink any alcohol. Others, it's you better not have a tattoo. And still others say, you better speak in tongues. And others say, you better not. You know, every denomination, everybody says in some way or not, you better have a good conversion story. Others say, you better talk this way about God. They're all rules. They're all performance-based. Paul says you don't belong because God calls you through, uh, for, uh, because you have done anything. You belong because God has called you through the gospel. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He has enlightened you with his gifts. And it is by faith rather than works. And because you belong, you have an identity. I like what... Um, Klein Snodgrass wrote in a book called Who God Says You Are, A Christian Understanding of Identity. He said, each of us also has his or her own individual history of experiences, choices, and acts. And these memories form a story that shapes our self-understanding. We have a narrative identity. And that often happens to a lot of people as well. The story of your life is who you are. And Paul would agree with that, but he puts on a Uh, He wants to make sure that you really understand the story of your life. Because it seems like the switcheroo had happened. And Israel was now saying the story of our life is how we have responded to God and how we've been faithful and how we've done this and how we've done that. And look at how good we are. That is not the story of your life. That's (laughs) That's definitely not the story of mine. How good I am. Okay? No. Too many people define their story as their personal effort and their success and their choices. And I think that's kind of the American way to define who you are. That is not God's way. Paul says your story is to really know your history that you find in Jesus Christ. Klein Snodgrass explains it this way. Our true history is the history of Christ into which we are grafted. His history within which and to which our personal history is subsumed is our defining history. That is what faith, baptism, and the Lord's Supper are about. Christians lay the story of their lives, damaged and all, in the hands of God, confess that parts of the story are not good, affirm that they do not direct their own story, and ask that their story be taken into and conformed to the narrative of what God is doing in Christ. If you really want to understand this history of the scriptures, that's the history of the scriptures. There's only one hero in the Bible, God and his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's it. Not Noah, not Abraham, not David, not Deborah, not Mary, not Peter, not Paul. Everybody else is broken and a mess. Not me, not you. My history, when I understand it, is subsumed and needs to be identified in Jesus Christ. The center of who I am is not my race, not my ethnicity, not my nationality, not my experiences, not my political perspective. It's not my performance, it's not my talents, it's not my choices. It's God's choice. It's God's grace. It's how God has called I love how Brennan Manning has written it. I think it was in his book, Abba's Child. He writes, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. It's not good. 
That's who you are. That's the radical definition of what it means to belong. Now, secondly, we find out in Romans the radical clarification of believing. Okay, now what is that? Well, you know, what's so fascinating, Paul says it's not simply believing God exists. Do you realize that all of the people that Paul was speaking to believed in God? You might be surprised, too, also to know that there are no such thing as theoretical atheists in any time of the Old Testament. Paul never met one. Jesus never met someone who did not believe in God. They all believed in God. Everyone believed in the divine. It's what they believed about God or what they believed about themselves. And so, what, again, what Paul says here is, but Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They were believing in God. They were just trusting in themselves. That's the problem. Everybody could say in Israel, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet, Paul says, they weren't people of faith. They were people based on works. James says much the same in his letter where he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You know, just saying you believe that God exists is not faith, according to Paul. Having the intellect to say, yes, there is a God. Yes, it must be true. Too many people, I think, believe in God in that way. And at the same time, then, rely on their own ability to please God to get into heaven. They believe in God, but they lie on themselves. They rely on themselves. And Paul is saying that's not faith. That's not saving faith. Faith is basically giving up all the other avenues for your sense of rightness before God for your sense of status with God, realizing any effort to try to produce a righteousness of your own, anything that you've ever done to offer God as your ticket into eternity is actually an insult to the very God who gives that freely through Jesus Christ. As if you could buy God off, as if you could bribe him, as if God doesn't already own everything, and as if God needs anything from you. Faith is radically defined by Paul as reliance, trust, dependence, abandonment of everything else, and to just rely on God. And so Brennan Manning says the most urgent need in your life is to trust what you have received. And what is it that you've already received? What have you received from Jesus? His perfect life, his perfect love. He perfectly loved God. He perfectly followed his father's will. He gave all glory. He never uh, honored and praised himself. He always honored his father. He focused on his will, and therefore he went and he healed the sick, and he welcomed outcasts, and he intentionally entered into the lives of broken people. He pursued those who were straying and brought them back. He did everything the law could possibly be done, and he did it perfectly, and for that, he faced rejection and crucifixion. 
and he dies in our place. That's what you have all received and what we're given as we are incorporated through baptism and as we receive the Lord's Supper, we're united with Jesus intimately and completely. It's what we receive. And as Brendan Manning says, I need to trust what I have received from my Savior. That is faith. It's not intellectual assent. It's not trusting in my understanding. It's trusting in a God, giving to him both my nightmares and my dreams, my past and my future, my weaknesses and my willfulness, my sin and my self-righteousness, placing all that and saying, Lord, all I've got is you, and all I need, Lord, is what you offer in Jesus. That's faith. You know, I think um, I was listening to, we in our um, one of the home huddles this week on Zoom, uh, Vicki, one of our members, said, you know, as she has said, you know, we are all children of God. God has no grandchildren. That is, you can't rely on somebody else's faith to get you there. It's that you trust the promises of God and the grace of God that God gives you, not because you're from this family or that family or this or that background. Your faith is in God. And finally, in this text, we discover the radical culmination of purpose. So Paul writes, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that word end is pretty wide, uh, has a wide interpretation, okay? Can mean a lot of things, and I think Paul is meaning at least two things here. It's the word telos in the Greek, which means, um, can mean all sorts of things. Telos can mean end goal and culmination. So Christ is the end of the law, as in the finish of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is the culmination of the law. Christ is the purpose behind the law. All these things that word can mean, and I think Paul meant them all in this text. You see, first, I think when Christ is the end of the law, Paul is saying that he's the finisher of it. He puts an end to it. He completes it. The law is finished and completed in him and doesn't need, it cannot any longer accuse you. It cannot condemn you. It has no power to, to eliminate you from the presence of God for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. And that it was the law was done for. It's over. He finished the law off for us in our place. But secondly, Christ is the end of the law, that he is the goal of the whole law, the purpose of which the law was put into place, the Ten Commandments, everything else, everything pointed to Jesus Christ. He completes it all so that now I don't have a checklist that I have to look at every day and go like, check, check, okay, I've done that, done that, done this, kept this, done that, oops, I missed that one that day. No, I have a person in front of me, a person with me, and the more I worship, the more I follow, the more I imitate, the more I am in relationship to this Jesus Christ, the more he bec I become a little more like him. The goal of my life, the purpose of my life is now to become more like Jesus. It's no longer, you know, um, my purpose is not to make a lot of money in this world. I might make a lot of money, but that's not my ultimate purpose. My purpose is not to um, invent a new gadget 
or find a fulfilling career or raise a bunch of kids or get a lot of stuff done. Those things may happen along the way, but your real goal is not a career, but it's a calling. Your real goal is to be called into the maturity of Jesus Christ himself and to grow to be more like him. You know, as a pastor, often I think the goal is to build a, quote, church, and that usually means a building with a lot of people. And the successful pastors in the United States, probably around the world, but in the United States especially, are seen in terms of, okay, how many thousands of people are following you, listening to you? How many bestseller books have you written? It's not my goal. My goal is to become more like Jesus, to love as he loved, to serve as he serves, to bear others' burdens as he bore them, to rejoice when he rejoices and celebrate with people and have them grow. So it's becoming a, not a good person, but a new person, the new humanity that Jesus Christ has for us. So that's what we have here in this text now. Okay? That we have been justified by God's grace, and he is mending broken hearts in a broken world. And we are mended through the fact that we have a radical description of what it means to belong. We have a radical clarification of what it means to believe, to trust him implicitly. We have a radical culmination of our purpose that we become more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, on this day, we just lift to you uh, the fact that so often we understand our belonging in terms other than just the fact that by God's grace we are here. Help us to live into that, Lord. Help us to trust you implicitly, radically, completely, and not trust ourselves or our works, not trying to offer to you anything, but just to open our hearts to what you have for us. Lord God, we pray that you would also teach us our purpose in this world, that we're not focused on everything else, but we're focused on the one thing that you want to see, that we are growing in conformity to your Son, Jesus Christ, and in him we move and have our being and we mature. Lord God, we pray that for the people of God here and all those who are watching online as well. I pray, Lord, today that uh, you would be working in us, that we, through this time, though we can't be quite together the way we want to be, though we haven't been able to meet and gather, that we're still growing, Lord, that we're growing to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that that would be the case. Lord, we lift up to you the needs of our, of our um, people here at Thrive. We know of certain situations. We lift up to you right now uh, Felicity, um, a uh, niece, I believe, of Zoe Husney, who is being rushed in Wales uh, to the emergency room with a high fever. We pray for your healing upon her. We lift up to you, Lord God, um, Andy Blankenship. And as she continues her clinical trial, we pray for your power and presence and healing on her. We lift up to you, Kai, who is going, undergoing chemotherapy, the grandson of Rebecca Llewellyn. We lift up to you, O Lord, um, Chris, the grandson of the Griskies, who is also facing chemotherapy for a brain tumor. We pray, Lord, your healing. We pray that you would draw them closer to you. And again, Lord God, we pray for your church, your people today, that your presence is seen among us, 
that we are living in the character of, of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, that we glorify you, that we give no glory to ourselves, that we don't just talk about how great we are by any means. We just look to you, Lord, and we know that you are the great one. You are the amazing one, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Lord Jesus, that you are the Lord to the glory of your Father. So bless us now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to also be part of your story, part of your history, part of who you are. As you give yourself in the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus, that we receive it and realize that that is our identity, that that's why we belong is because you've invited us. And you say, take and eat, take and drink. And we receive you, Lord. We receive all that you are. Help us to understand what it means to belong and to welcome others to belong as well by your grace. Help us to understand what it means to believe and to call others to that kind of faith. Not a secondary faith through someone else, but a primary faith by trusting you implicitly. And help us, Lord, to be focused on the purpose of sharing you with the world through our attitudes, our actions, our personalities, our demeanor, our disposition, our words, everything, Lord, because you are the all in all. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.